Father, it's an amazing thing that even now, here in this place, in this time, in this space, we're able to worship your holy name. And Lord, that's just a prelude. When one day we will be with all the saints in glory and all the heavenly hosts singing worship and praise to your name. Unending. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We look towards that day. But in the day that we have now, we give you praise. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So have you ever had to prove who you are? Or even more difficult, have you ever had to prove what kind of person you are? In 1994, I was pulled in by the Mohabarat. That's the Middle Eastern version of the FBI. And they questioned me for some time in a uh, room. And I, whenever I mention this, I, I can't fail to, to see the room, a little concrete uh, room with a single drain in the center, a picture of the king on the wall, and uh, a little desk with two chairs. And after a long pause without looking at me, the, uh, the interrogator uh, said, we're not going to arrest you. Uh, long pause yet. <laughs> now, something had indeed happened at the church before I got there, which in itself is no kidding uh, worthy, of a, uh, worthy of a book. And, but even though I wasn't there at the time, the authorities seemed confident that I had some role in it. Now, I'm honestly not sure why they just didn't kick me out of the country right then and there. They had kicked many others while Barbara and I were there. They had kicked 11 people that we knew uh, out, you know, go to the airport, do not pass go, don't even pack your bags, you're just gone. So I don't know why that didn't happen, except for maybe he thought there was more that I could give him. So what he wanted were witnesses uh, who could corroborate that I was who I said I was, and uh, that I did what I said I did. That is, I was pastoring the international church, and uh, that what I did was actually, you know, pastor and language learning. I told him, of course I could bring witnesses. And so he said, how can you do that? And I said, well, we have a church board. You know, it was an international church, so we had... Uh, all these different people from different countries on it. He said, I'm not interested in them. I'm not going to talk to any of the foreigners. Are there any, are there any uh, Jordanians on the board? And I said, yes, there are. And he said, I will speak to them. So I went back to the board and I said, yea, verily, this is the situation. Please uh, come with me and be a witness that I am who I say I am and that I do what I say that I do. And <laughs> not a chance. We're not going there with you. We will not go 
into that compound. Now, I, I, I know people do what they do for their own reasons, and so I wasn't really upset by that. I understood that they didn't want to uh, go there, and so my response was, of, of course, because uh, they had said that if that was a requirement, they would leave the church. Well, please, no, stay in the, stay in the church. Don't go to the Machabrat, and the Lord will find a way. And he did. And uh, I'll not uh, finish that story today, but I do want to highlight one thing out of that story, and that's this, the importance of witnesses. Now, you don't think of it maybe as such, but it's important that you have a witness in your wallet or your purse if you get pulled over by the police. It's called a driver's license. A passport is a witness. These are things that corroborate that you are who you say you are. And I suppose it could get even more complicated, you know, testimony in court. But without those witnesses, outside of your family and friends and your small little circles, you aren't necessarily who you say you are and therefore under some suspicion. And when that comes to being the state, uh, that can be a terrifying situation. Last week, we saw that Jesus had made extraordinary claims about himself. He claimed to be the giver of life, the bringer of judgment, someone who is worthy of the respect and the honor that's due to God. And we looked at those claims, and along with C.S. Lewis, we came to the conclusion, we determined that we must take Jesus Christ at his word. He is Lord of all. Now, when Jesus was talking, and he hadn't finished yet, the people around him were stunned. And Jesus knew exactly what was happening here. He was being tried in the press, so to speak. Well, they didn't really have the press very much back then, but they very much had public displays of informal trials. And Jesus knew what was going on. We already know from the text that the Pharisees were so angry, they wanted to kill him right then and right there. They wanted him dead. We find out in other places the reason they didn't try to make him dead at that point was uh, because they were afraid of the crowd, okay? They, they were fearful that the crowd would turn on them. So Jesus, knowing this, he obliged them. And he called forth witnesses, in fact, as Moses had commanded. In Deuteronomy 19.15, Moses wrote, Out of the mouths of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now, sadly, we live in a, um, a fallen world. We live in a time when uh, faith in our country's institutions are at an all-time low. We live in a time and a place where people make claims about themselves, just go on social media. They make claims about themselves that simply are not true. 
and we no longer know as a society who we can trust. In fact, we can't trust uh, everybody in general. That would be naive. It was true in Moses' day as well. And so the law stipulated that there had to be two or three witnesses who would corroborate the testimony of the person. Now, before we look at these witnesses, it's important for us to touch on this. And we do uh, not frequently, but often we touch on this because it's so important for us today. It's an important related matter. I shouldn't have to mention it. I should never have to mention it. But because it is in the it's crept in the church at large, it's unavoidable. And the issue is that of truth. Not your truth or my truth or the truth of this community or another community, but absolute truth. Now, postmodernism, which is, uh, which is really not a coherent philosophy. If you've taken philosophy, you understand, you, you kind of know that's true and would uh, Agree with me. I think that postmodernism is actually a major depressive disorder that modernists had after World War I. It needs the medication and healing that the gospel brings. So postmodernism is actually more of an attitude, it's more of a mood. But in this mood, it says that there is no absolute truth. Or if there is absolute truth, we can't know it anyway, so it doesn't matter. And in my mind, that makes it self-refuting because it posits an absolute truth that there's no absolute truth. Have you ever noticed that people use truth in order to destroy it? People use language in order to destroy uh, language. It's, a, it's the most amazing thing. People use freedom, and this was argued all the way back with the founding uh, fathers, put into words by Francis Schaeffer, that, who absolutely had understood this, use freedom in order to destroy freedom. And it's intentional, and it's deliberate. It's with forethought, it's with malice, and it's with the idea of destroying the things that we hold dear. Now, postmodernism, not only does it reject absolute truth, it even uh, rejects any kind of reliable uh, meaning. Take uh, Elphaba Throp, for example. Somebody, somebody knows who she is? No, that laugh is because you don't know who she is. I wouldn't expect that any of you would know who she was. But you all actually do know who she is. We don't recognize her by that name. That's the character that Gregory McGuire gave her in uh, his uh, book and play Wicked. We know her from Oz, the wicked witch of the West. But unlike the wicked witch of the West... Uh, in the Wizard of Oz, she's simply misunderstood. And all the, the things that she did, if you understood who the true villain was, you would know why she did what she did. The true villain, of course, was Glinda, <laughs> the good witch. You see these things. 
So what we see in postmodernism is essentially a flipping of everything on its head. And once you understand that, it becomes a whole lot easier to understand the kinds of things that are happening uh, around you. And Galinda, why was she so upset? Was because her name was Galinda. Did any of you catch that? But nobody could say Galinda, so they said Glinda. And that made her very, very angry. And so she became evil. But anyway, the real bad guy. Later on, of course, she decides to try to earn the name uh, good, but that's not for us today. What is for us today is that we are in the very process of watching evil become good and good become evil. Now, I, I have to say that in my lifetime, I never expected to see that. I would read that in the scripture and I would say, oh, that must have been really bad back then. <laughs> And it's right before us. But as believers, we know that there is truly a good and that there is real evil. There are lies and there is truth. John emphasized truth. Uh, in fact, he used the word uh, truth in the, his gospel 25 times and he uses another 20 times in his epistles. And in today's text, Jesus asserts that the Father's testimony about him is true. He, Jesus later on claimed to be truth itself, the embodiment of it. In his high priestly prayer, he says, your word is truth. He told Pilate, uh, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify of the truth. There is truth in the spiritual realm, absolute truth, and it centers around the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the word of God. So that's, that's the aside. We have to understand, and I know some of you may wrestle with this notion, because we're bombarded with it every day, in every way, all the time, unrelenting bombardment of there is no such thing as truth. So who are these witnesses that Jesus referred to? The first witness that he refers to is actually himself. Uh, he said in verse 31, uh, in John 5, 31 through 40 is where we're at. In verse 31, he said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. I mean, you say, John, that doesn't sound like he's calling himself a witness, but he is. Nevertheless, and his witness is true, whether we regard it as true or not. What he meant in this context is the, with the law. Under the law, a person's testimony is not considered true. Understand not that it's false, but that it's not valid. In other words, you can't have your testimony be the only testimony in a court of law. 
In fact, being your own witness wasn't allowed. In fact, husband and wife were so close, they couldn't be witnesses one for the other because they were considered a single uh, unit. So being your own witness, not allowed, and there was uh, nothing in the court other than to bring outside witnesses in here, and that's what Jesus does. In verse 32, there's another who bears witness. Now, at this point, he's actually not referring to John. He's referring to God the Father. And we come back to that, but he pivots at just this moment to John in in, uh, 5.33. He says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. In other words, you sent to John means you went, you investigated, you asked John what he said, and he has borne witness to the truth. So I think it's important for us to understand what it was that John said, just very briefly. He had said four specific things about Jesus. First, he said that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. In fact, he quoted Isaiah, did he not? I am the one, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. We see that in John 1, 23. And Jesus was that one who was coming. Second, Jesus was the Lamb of God. I mean, to his own disciples, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is that innocent substitute who stood out in our place, took our sins so that we might live Third, John said that Jesus was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's in John 1.33. You'll remember this if you've heard these uh, messages. You'll remember this. If not, just read through John chapter 1. You'll see it again. That Jesus would be the one who would pour out the Spirit of God into the lives and the hearts of the people to satisfy Uh, that thirst for life and truth. And then fourth, John declared that Jesus was the Son of God, the Word made flesh. You sent to John, and he has said, yes. He bore witness to the truth of the testimony uh, that everything that he declared was in fact, true. So then Jesus says something that sounds a little strange to us. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, uh, but I say these things that you might be saved. That's a little bit of a difficult connection to make. Uh, The testimony I receive is not that that's from man, uh, but I say these things that you might be saved. Of course, Jesus' testimony does not rest on what men think about him at all, in, in any way, in any form. The truth of his deity or his divine sonship was not resting on and does not rest on what we think about it. He had these other uh, testimonies, he had these other witnesses uh, to bring forth, and he brought the testimony of John right to the front, so that they might be 
saved. There's something about the character of John that people had really had really taken to. They believed, the people believed that he was a prophet, so much so that they even wondered if he was the Messiah. So John had a great deal of credibility, and he was saying, I don't need uh, John to be my witness, but John is my witness, and I'm saying this so that you might be saved. And look what he says about John in verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. What could Jesus say about you that might uh, come uh, to that? That's just a tremendous statement. But I want you to notice thing, uh, something here. And we see this throughout the Bible. This is not mysterious or it's not different or it's not strange. And that's that John was a lamp. When you understand that, that he was a lamp, you also understand that he, he wasn't the light. He was a lamp. What does a lamp do? A, a lamp bears the light. A lamp is something that has the potential for light, but that in and of itself is not. It is a container. And that is what we are. And through the Holy Spirit in us, we can shine. We can burn in this way that John did. And now Jesus comes to the witness that he felt is really the important one. And that is the compelling, corroborating uh, word in 36 through uh, 38, which backs up his claims that Jesus is from the Father himself. Now, that witness comes to us in three different ways, right? First, the Father bears witness to Jesus through his works. That is through the, uh, his miracles in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father uh, has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, by his works, I, I think he primarily meant uh, the miracles, of which only a few are, are, are mentioned. There were many uh, miracles. Uh, and uh, when the Jews said to Jesus in, later on in John 10, in chapter 24, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Don't you love it? I just love this. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And his answer was, I told you, and you did not believe. And then I showed you with the works that he's done. Theologian J.C. Ryle, he he points out five uh, features about those miracles. One, he says, there were not a few. In other words, Jesus was doing miracles everywhere he went. There, this wasn't something that the, the, the Pharisees were saying, you can't do a miracle. Most of them uh, who had followed him saw him do miracles. So what did they do? 
Their hatred, you know, when your brain is fixed in a particular direction and you're not open to anything that Jesus Christ or anyone else has to say to you, then what do you do? They said that the power that Jesus had to do these miracles came from Satan himself. Well, I can assure you that God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, none of them liked that. But their greatness, okay, just back to the miracles, the greatness of the miracles, they weren't little. In other words, it wasn't these little miracles. These things were big. They were noticeable. They were the kinds of things that really changed the trajectory of a person's life. And they were not done in a corner. They were done publicly. They were done out in the open. They were done almost always as uh, an expression of compassion and love and uh, mercy. And their appeal was to our senses. In other words, Jesus was actually asked, why do you do this? Well, it's because you guys need to see it. You know, it's so that you'll believe they were visible. They would withstand examination. The second thing we find in verse 37, the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard his form you have never seen. So what is this witness that Jesus is bringing now who has no voice and has never been seen? It seems in the text that Jesus is referring to the inner convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the inner witness that we hear When we listen to it, we understand the truth of God. And even if our mind might deny it. I mean, think about an evolutionist who comes to Christ and then comes to believe in creation. That's a... uh, (laughs) That torques the brain. Okay? I don't know how else... I don't know how else to say that. And the mind might have difficulty believing in creation while the heart is being pulled straight to the throne room of God by the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis when he said that on the night he was converted, the night he was converted, he said this, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And it's because his mind His mind could not comprehend what the Bible was saying, but his heart was being flooded by the Holy Spirit. And of course, if you know Lewis, you understand that he was able to uh, move past these things. And then there's a third way that the Father witnesses of Jesus to us. He told those listening, he said, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them and they bear witness of me or to me, yet you refuse 
to come to me that you may have life. Now, this is a, this is very strange. I'll tell you why it's strange. And I, I think I know a little bit experientially why it's strange. The scribes and the Pharisees were meticulous students of the word of God. They counted words. There were people who, I suppose, theoretically, if you took a scroll and you put a pen through several pages, they knew it so well they would tell you based on what word it went through. They could tell you the different words underneath that. We're talking about people who knew this stuff by heart. They spent their entire lives counting uh, words, memorizing significant sections, some, many, actually, memorizing the whole thing, at least the Torah. They knew the word of God. They knew it. They knew it by heart. But they didn't know any of its life-giving power. I... There are some marvelous scholars who know the Word of God as a book, as literature today, and yet their hearts are far from Him. It's possible to spend your entire life in study and research of God's Word and it never penetrate your heart. Jesus himself declares, when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at all of that, it bears witness of me. Jesus is the main character of the Old Testament. I mean, when you look at after how Adam and Eve fell into sin, God promised them what? That a seed who came from the woman would crush the serpent's head. Right there in Genesis 3.15, you're already talking about uh, Jesus Christ. And then God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins, giving an object lesson of how sin was to be covered, how the Lamb of God would be slain so that we might be covered. God promised Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I could go on and on. But as Luke 24, 27, you know, if you've been to Emmaus, you're familiar with that. When Jesus is having that conversation with those two disciples on the road, depressed, and discouraged and lost, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Why didn't they record that discussion? Can you imagine being taught from Jesus, about Jesus in the Old Testament. What an amazing thing. But the Father bore witness to Jesus through Jesus' testimony, John the Baptist, the works that Jesus did, 
and the scriptures, all for a particular reason, so that we might come to eternal life. So as I move toward the end of the sermon, I do want to point that out again, and I, I want to make a, a, a slight shift in the way that we may think of these things. Jesus' aim in all of this, the bringing the witness, the public defense, and all of uh, this, uh, you know, being tried in the media thing was so that people would come to salvation. Jesus' aim at this point was not in order to win an argument. In fact, not even to defend what he was saying about himself, but we're told, I say these things that you might be saved. And yet in, in verse 40, he lamented, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. When we have an opportunity to bear witness to someone who is outside of Christ. Listen, I hope that you can hear this or at least some of the, the depth of this. Your goal is not to win an argument. It's not your goal. Your goal is not to defeat the other person. That is not your goal at all. It is to win the person to Christ, we have to change our understanding of what it means to witness to people or to tell people outside of Christ that there are arguments or people to be defeated, but more so that they are in need of Christ's special forces, rescue forces to rescue them from the kingdom of darkness. They are not your enemy. They are your brothers and sisters by creation. And your job is not to destroy them so that they might be built back up in Christ. Your job is to rescue them. Yesterday, you may have read, there were four children that were found in the Colombian jungle after having been lost for 40 days. Who? Let me see some hands. If you haven't read this story, it's an amazing story. A 206, which I've got a lot of hours in, crashed in the jungle. The pilot, the co-pilot, and the mother were killed. Four children the youngest being 11 months old, the oldest being 13 years old. They survived in the jungle for 40 days, and they were rescued against all odds, and they have life because they were rescued. The Jews were in every bit a lost estate in need of rescue. So Jesus reasoned with them. He said, you have not heard his voice. You've not seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. But understand, he said those things 
in order to bring them to him, to let them know that it's possible to study the scriptures with tragic results. It can fill a person with intellectual pride because they know more than others, or at least they, they think they do. But that rescue of the four uh, children reminded me of another rescue. It took place December 1971. Uh, perhaps you've heard, or this may bring back some vague memories to some of you. Juliana Kopka, she was the sole survivor of a Lanza uh, flight in, in Peru. The plane disintegrated in a thunderstorm two miles up. It disintegrated, and her seat, her row of seats, separated from the airplane while it was breaking up. And uh, she, she went down through the canopy, and she survived. She survived, and she spent 12 days. Fortunately, her parents were zoologists, and she knew a lot about the jungle. And who knew this? You know, I didn't. I had no idea. If you're going to float down the Amazon or some river there, uh, float down the, uh, the, the center of it in the deep parts because apparently the piranha won't bother you. Uh, it's only in the shallows that they get excited. How about that? So that's what she did. She went right down the middle of the river and she stumbled across on day 12 a fishing camp. And her biggest issue was her trying to prove that she was not some kind of water goddess. <laughs> no, I survived this plane crash. Uh, actually, you couldn't even call it a plane crash. It just fell apart. As an adult, she once remarked, an upward draft, a benevolent canopy of leaves, and pure luck can conspire to bring a girl safely back to earth like a maple seed. She fell from the sky, and it was, I would say, impossible for her to communicate to the people who found her who she was. How much more difficult would it be for the Son of God who came from heaven to come down, become a, a man, so that he could tell us, communicate to us. The point of the entire Bible leads directly to Jesus. And don't miss the point of this section. I say these things that you may be saved. That's the question today. Are you saved? Do you have eternal life? If not, Search the scriptures, but not just to know them, but to know Christ in them. Not that knowing the scriptures is, I, I, that's a good thing, but knowing Christ in them is better. Look for Christ. Come to Jesus. He will give you eternal life. Father, Lord, we're deeply grateful 
that somehow, some way, at the fall, when our plane disintegrated in midair, how some of us live. Lord, when we understand it as such a complete destruction, we no longer, or at least it opens the possibility that we no longer say, oh, it's because I'm this or I'm that, or because I deserve something, or because I've been so good. We understand that it's just your pure grace that we are saved through your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.